0: Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 188.
1: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau.
0: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 188 you're listening to. My guest today is Justin Weiss, who's a San Francisco-based audio engineer. He uh, is the owner and operator of TrackWorks Mastering and Recording. And he's been doing TrackWorks since around 1995. And he's mastered, mixed, or recorded uh, a pretty wide array of people, including Sammy Hagar, Papa Roach, Matt Nathanson, The Tubes, Uh, The Coup, Be Legit. And he stopped by my house a couple days ago, and we had a great chat. So uh, Justin Weiss coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, let me ramble for a bit. Get your coffee. Mm. I got mine. So I just got back from uh, Europe. I was in the Netherlands and France and England. And uh, when I was in England, I got to see uh, Jules from Gearsluts and James Ivey Former uh, guest and as well as a man of uh, Pro Tools expert, got to see Katie Tavini, former guest, and one of the things that struck me when I got back, in terms of how I felt, and you know, whenever you leave your comfort zones and you come back, I think you tend to have a different perspective, and I certainly did in this case. And that perspective, and is that I, I I feel like. Personally, I need to think of working more globally, you know, there's a lot of work to be had across the globe from different countries, uh, Central America and Africa and uh, Southeast Asia and Europe, you know, Eastern and Western Europe. And, you know, it's just a lot of different possibilities. And... I got into that conversation about that with uh, Justin Weiss after we did our interview, we were hanging out and chatting a bit and it just, I I told him, I said, you know, I'm thinking in a more global way these days because, you know, typically in the past, you know, prior to the internet, you kind of needed to move to an LA or a London or a Nashville or New York. But, you know, these days, as long as the internet connection is good, and your work doesn't require people to travel to you like mixing and mastering work or audio cleanup you can pretty much work from anywhere as long like like i say as long as that internet connection is solid otherwise it's pain in the ass And case in point i remember chad blake at mix with the masters telling us even with a bad internet connection you know he works globally you know he just i remember he had to take his cell phone out to a field with his laptop and upload files pain in the ass but if you have a solid internet connection that's a different thing because people can find you and you can find those people that you want to work with so something to consider you know maybe you're in your i don't know your local hometown and you're thinking oh man why do i stay here or or maybe uh, you know and you want to move to someplace else or maybe you're you know like me and you live in a very expensive area and you're like thinking God, I got to get out of here at some point and try it somewhere else. Well, you can do that. There's no reason why you can't do that. And I'm sure that some of you out there will say, well, you know, you can't do it because of the following reasons. Well, I, you know, I'm going to just kind of really push on this and say I think that you can. So um, think it through. If you're thinking about moving and you're hesitant because you're like, well, what about my hometown or what about all the comfort zones I'm used to? You know? try it out worst case you can always move back right yeah working remote all right i want to give a shout out to our friends over at Gearslets.com. they help make the working class audio podcast possible feel free to stop on by the audio live sub forum that we sponsor check it out it's dot com. also want to give a shout out to our friends over at universal audio which i really got to thank them for uh making the arrow, what a kick-ass little device i took it with me throughout europe and was able to get the podcast done for like you know four or five episodes that was great uh the fact that it's you know bus powered really solved uh, a little bit of a problem when i had very little outlets you know on trains and planes and uh i didn't bring a ton of uh, adapters you know with me So it was great. I could just plug the laptop into one adapter in England or in France or in the Netherlands, and boom, powered the laptop, powered the arrow, got it done. So check that out. That's at uh, universalaudio.com. All right, let's get down to it. Let's talk to Justin Weiss, who came over to the house, had a good chat. Yeah, here it is, Justin Weiss, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Okay, now we're recording. All right. Uh, well, thanks for coming out to my place, and yeah. wel- welcome to the podcast. Great to see it. Let's go back to the beginning. When you arrived here, we were kind of chatting about a couple things that you know you're talking about in regards to your existing studio and equipment you're using, and you mentioned some dates. So let's go back to prior to 96. Let's mm-hmm. kind of get a sense of how you got into audio. Sure. Uh, on a professional level, what drove you to want to do this for a living?
1: Well, that's a great place to start. I um, started off playing in bands and was into home recording. At that point, it was just little port of studios with cassette tapes. was doing that for a long time, you know, starting in the mid-80s and all the way up until in 93, when I finally got tired of working, driving trucks and delivering pizzas, and uh, <laughs> decided to just go to recording school and pay... You know the tuition and take my chances, really didn't think that I would get anywhere enough to make a living at it. But I thought if I didn't try, I'd always regret it. And so I went to California Recording Institute, which at the time was in Palo Alto um, or Menlo Park. And I was living in Santa Cruz. So I was driving a good amount a few times a week to go there and really highly motivated. And I ended up graduating at the top of the class and they hired me at the school. And so that was the moment I knew that, oh, I'm going to make a living doing this. <laughs> and, and so it was a really big deal. So I, they also were moving the school to San Francisco at the time. Well, they opened a second campus, and that's where he wanted me to work. So that was when I moved from Santa Cruz to San Francisco in order to take that job. And while I was teaching there, after a year, so I started teaching in 94, In 95 was when I started Trackworks, and what I did was I made a deal with the the school owner, Dave Gibson, that I would buy a Pro Tools rig, which was new, a new thing, Pro Tools 3, 16 tracks, 16 bits. That's what we were working with. I would buy a Pro Tools rig, and the students could use it during the school hours. In exchange for me being able to use one of the studios, and the Pro Tools rig to earn money to pay for the Pro Tools rig. (laughs) And that was the beginning of TrackWorks. And so for a couple of years, I was working as a full-time instructor and a full-time audio engineer, almost full-time. And so I was pulling double duty. I was in that place seven days a week, 12 hours a day. I got to the point where I was getting an eye twitch, you know, from just overworking. And back then I was young and I was drinking every night and I was wearing myself out. So once I got enough clientele, I just moved out and got my own spot in the Warfield building on 6th and Market. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, you know, nasty little corner of the city right there. Yeah.
0: And just a side note, uh, working at the Warfield was uh, one of the jobs that I had in my early days of San Francisco. And that area of the Tenderloin Mm -hmm. in San Francisco was where I got an exposure to a subculture of human beings that was fascinating and frightening and uh, eye-opening
1: all at the same time. I saw some stuff there. Yeah. I saw some (laughs) stuff there for sure. So I had that spot for a year and I just had a 500 square foot office space on the fifth floor of the office building that's attached to the Warfield theater. And back then it was kind of an artist space in there. It was, it was cheap rent and you walk down and down out onto the street and it's just, you know, homeless people everywhere and, 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 you Needles. know, the tender line and, you know, and um. so that was interesting, an interesting place to be. So I was there for one year. I built, the studio myself in, and put in like a little recording room and a good sized control room and uh, was just doing a ton of work there. I was busy. And so that was my first year, like being completely separate from the school. Then a studio called the Blue Room Studios went out of business in the Mission District and I took over their building. And then I had a much bigger place than and it was nice. And I was there for two years in 98 and 99. And that was the height of the first dot-com boom, if you'll remember. I do. So my building got purchased out from under me. And I had a 6 months' notice. And so I was looking everywhere in the city for a new place. And I could not find a place in San Francisco at all for, for a recording studio. So to South San Francisco, I went. And the first place I looked at was this... 1,200-square-foot warehouse with a 20-foot insulated beamed ceiling and a diagonal wall and a good-sized control room-sized room already built as an office in there. I, I snapped it up, and that was 18 years ago. I've been in there ever since. So I opened in January of 2000, which makes it really easy to remember how long I've been there. You,
0: you've you been renting that entire time? Yeah. Huh.
1: Yeah, wow. I've got a cool landlord. He's only raised the rent a little bit over that entire time, and um, I've been just on a lease, yeah.
0: That's incredible.
1: It's a good long run, isn't it? In the Bay Area, that
0: seems like, yeah. you know, I think the only other situation I could name remotely like that would be uh, uh, John Vanderslice's uh, Tiny, tiny t- The original Tiny Telephone. Yeah uh in the space that it's in cuz yeah. and just for the audience it's it's really it, you and I understand it that it's a it's a common occurrence to have a place have the building be purchased from underneath you as you're renting get kicked mm-hmm. out or the rent raised and a new you know condo like situation to be uh taking the place of what was there yep. that that's kind of a common thing yes it is south san francisco i'm not really that knowledgeable about in terms of the real estate and what has or has not happened down there?
1: South San Francisco is right now booming. It's just blowing up. They're building all these huge residential and commercial buildings, like five-story buildings all around the downtown area. They're all going up right now. So it's about to get crazy there when they open up. It's been a pretty industrial place up till now. Uh, A lot of auto shops and various manufacturing, smaller factories all around. So my studio is in a business park and it's a condo business park. So each unit is owned by an individual owner and then they have like an association and management. And so I just got a cool landlord. I just lucked out and, and uh, he's just kept me in there. And he, since I always pay my rent on time and I never call him about anything. And he just is like, okay, that's easy for me. And he leaves me alone. And and so, you know, I fix the toilet myself, you know, anything like that. I just don't I don't want to bother him. I could say that to people out there if you're renting, don't bug your landlord. <laughs> it's worked really well for me in my house as well. We rent.
0: So when you say, you know, don't bug your landlord, depending on where you're at, do you do you recommend at least maybe telling the landlord, hey, the the toilet's uh, messed up but i'm going to i could take care of it it's no problem
1: that's not what i do i just don't even call him uh, i i didn't replace the toilet i replaced everything inside the toilet okay uh, if i was going to actually re- remove the, the whole toilet and replace it then i would tell him because he's going to come and see it at some point and be like hey where's my toilet <laughs> so i don't want that kind of a shock for him you know but when, if it's something i can just handle and it's not going to be a huge expense for me I would rather do it because I've had the experience with landlords in previous studios and in places where I've rented as a house where like in my landlords at my house right now, I hope they're not listening. We, we, they had to come and fix the kitchen a couple of years ago and they jacked our rent up 200 bucks a month. Then last year they had to do the water heater replacement. They jacked it up another 200 bucks a month. They're making way more money on rent than they spent on those repairs and it's all coming out of our pocket. So now we fix things ourselves hmm. and or we pay someone to fix things. And it's a lot cheaper than paying more rent.
0: So the name of the place that you've had all these years has been Trackworks. What's the website that people can check out as they're listening yeah. to us?
1: T-R-A-K-W-O-R-X. Okay. .com.
0: Throughout these years, have you been concentrating on a combination of recording, mixing, and mastering? Or how, what's been the, the makeup of it all?
1: Yeah. it's um, I set out in the beginning to do recording and mixing. Okay. And right from the start, the very first album I ever did, they were like, well, why can't you just master it? And so I was like, well, I, I'll try. And so at that point, I didn't have any mastering equipment I uh, had just plugins and the L1 limiter, you know, and uh, they were happy, you know. So it gradually grew from there to where mastering became a regular part of my business. About half of my business for a lot of years was mastering. And so, like by the time I had moved in ninety-seven to my own space, mm-hmm. I was doing 50% mastering, 50% recording and mixing. And that went on that way for a number of years. And then gradually the mastering has been eclipsing the mixing based on client demand mostly. So up to the point where in 2016, I decided that because I was getting too booked up with recording, well, let's how do I put this? Recording sessions are big blocks of time. And people call for mastering, they want it done now because they, they're already done mixing, right? They're waiting on you for, to do the mastering. So I decided to Reduce the amount of time I would allocate each month for recording and mixing, so that I could see how much mastering work I really would get. Hmm. Because I had been, people had been turning away because I, I was too booked up with recording. So I did that as an experiment, and lo and behold, there's enough mastering work to now I'm at like 80% mastering and 20% recording mixing, and I like mastering work, so i you know. And now that I've been doing this for 23 years and I'm getting older, crawling around on the floor and <laughs> plugging in microphones is not as fun as it used to be, you know. And I, I really related to your chiropractor episode recently because I, I just came from one this morning, actually. And uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm 53 now and I need a chiropractor, you know, because studio work is actually really bad for your back.
0: Have you had consistent work over the years?
1: Yes, except... For historic events like nine eleven, okay, nine eleven happened. Two thousand one, I was doing gangbusters business, and then it was like someone shut off a switch. For three months, I had nothing. It was tumbleweeds because everybody was scared. And recording is a luxury, you know. People were worried about their country and what was gonna were there gonna be more attacks, and so I, and I was totally unprepared for that because I had been going at that point for six years with regular steady heavy business and I had no savings I was always spending all my money on gear purchases and that's why I have this ridiculous amount of gear because I just went through so many years of just buying more and more gear and I was all of a sudden having to sell gear to pay the rent you know and pay the bills put food on the table and um so I learned from that is keep a cushion in the bank right keep some savings in the bank so that you can sleep at night if suddenly there's something happens so 9-11 was actually a, a pretty powerful event for me personally and financially and, and for the way I plan and, and the way I've lived my life ever since hmm. for that reason. Then again, in 2008, 2009, with the Great Recession, business got spotty. And uh, at that time, I was living in a very high rent place in San Francisco, and I ended up having to sell a few pieces of gear that I missed dearly during that recession, and then Ever since then, I've had steady, good business until the next recession.
0: It's interesting when you have that number of years under your belt and you've gone through these significant moments of time, yeah. 9-11, recession. Ultimately, has that shaped how you operate You know, now in terms of always keeping a cushion, not overbuying buying on equipment?
1: Yes. And I would recommend to anybody to be cognizant of the fact that stuff happens and you think you've got everything balanced and you're going along and you've got, you're making the payments on this and you're, you know, you're thinking about this next thing you're going to buy. And you're, if you don't have a good amount of money in the bank, like enough to live off of and support your business for two or three months with like no income, like what if you, you know, break your leg or something, you know, you you get hurt in a car accident and you can't work for a while or there's another 911 or whatever something happens a lot of businesses will disappear because of something like that because they're not prepared for it so that's what I learned after a couple of close calls with with history is save some of that money you don't necessarily need that microphone and when I finally got out from under my debt that was a big moment for me because I for a lot of years had carried a lot of debt and had leased equipment and credit cards and you know did all that juggling of stuff of credit accounts and Mm-hmm. you know, balance transfers and all that kind of stuff just to keep it all up in the air. And uh, finally, I just decided to get out of all of that. And when the day that I paid off my last credit bill, I said, never again, no more debt. I don't think people just starting out can realistically do that. But if you make it a few years, I'd say do it because get completely out of debt. And so now whenever I buy something is with cash and it feels really good.
0: Yeah. That, that position of strength of having money in the bank, and being prepared for whatever is going to come your
1: way yeah. must feel really good. Sleep well at night.
0: Yeah. yeah. What would you attribute to your success of this constant business?
1: Oh, uh, it's my my personality. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's partially true, actually, because I mean, uh, it's a personal it's a person to person business. It is right. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, it's more than that. You have to be able to give people a good product. So I and mean, if people like you, they're comfortable with you, they like the results you get, they get from you, and they feel that they got it at a good value, mm-hmm. that was what I set out to do in the beginning. And I will say that it must be true because I'm still here. So when I started, I, I, my whole philosophy was to put myself in my client's shoes. And what do they want when they come to me? You know, they want an experience that's fun and creative, and that sounds good. And with someone who doesn't try to impose their will, they want their, their creative vision, you know, and so what I see a lot of producers and engineers doing is imposing their will on their clients, and the clients aren't happy. And I've never I've tried to never do that. I mean, nobody's perfect, but I try to never do that. And I just keep trying to keep my thoughts on what serving the client and making them feel like they got everything they wanted, and they got it at a bargain price. So I've always kept my prices lower, sometimes a lot lower than other people offering the same services mm-hmm. or with the same kind of equipment and studio. And um, that's worked for me. Now Other people take a different approach and they they um, have told me, they're like, oh, you know what? If you jacked your rates way up, you'd actually get more work. And I see that that is kind of a psychological thing that some people will be like, oh, well, you, you get what you pay for. It can't be any good if it's cheap. And that's not what I would want as a client. So that's not the way I do it.
0: There's kind of a fine line there of how to take your expertise and at the same time take what your clients want. And some clients will say, okay, just do, do your thing. You know, make me sound better.
1: Mm-hmm. Some
0: clients want to get involved on a technical level.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What have been your experiences with your clients? And- where does that philosophy kind of not work? And where does it
1: really work? You probably just put your finger on the trickiest part, which is the few clients that are technically minded, um, or that do have studio experience themselves. Those are the ones that are the hardest to work with sometimes, because they've got their own opinions on how to do it, right. And so they'll see you doing something, and they will start questioning you. And it gets frustrating if you're in the middle of a the thick of things, and you're trying to really work efficiently. And, and then somebody's saying, Hey, why are you doing that? Can you try this? And sometimes it's a good idea. And sometimes it's something that I know won't work well, with the equipment I'm using or with the situation and at hand. And so it takes a lot of diplomatic skills to deal with that. And there's been a couple of times over the years where I've lost my temper with someone, (laughs) you know, where they're, I mean, we're like, They're questioning like my digital clocking setup or something. and We're in the middle of tracking drums, you know, or something like that. And I'm just like, you're not making sense. That's not an important thing to talk about right now. Right. You know, and if they push it, then I mean, you know, I remember I'm thinking of one guy in particular, I hope he's not listening.
0: What about getting fresh clients? Is it just word of mouth?
1: Well, as everybody says, it's about 90%. Yeah. That goes right back to what I was saying about making the clients leave happy and feeling like they got a good value. Then they tell people. And that worked for me right from the start. And so I've never changed it. I always want people to feel like they got a, the sound of a big studio at the price of a small studio. Mm-hmm. And then they tell their friends. That's you know really what it's about, is people want a recommendation from someone they trust of to somebody they can trust. And a trust is a huge word in this business, I think. Let's take full circle. I think of music, audio engineers, like a chiropractor. You want to find a chiropractor that you trust and who knows you, and you want to keep going back to the same one because he knows you and he knows your problems and he knows how to fix them. He knows, you know, you have a relationship there. Audio engineers is very much the same thing. Once you've worked with somebody, they you guys know each other and, the next time they want to record something or master something, they're going to come right back to you. And furthermore, they're going to tell their friends. Like, I always recommend my chiropractor to other people, Mm -hmm. because I know he's good. And I know there's bad ones. And I went to a bad one once. And it was, I mean, I didn't get hurt, but you could get hurt. From what this woman did to me, I like I could have gotten really hurt. And she was just running a mill, you know, it was terrible. And. And then she kept call- – I, I didn't go back and she kept calling me like, you need to come back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going back.
0: Well, I, and I feel the same way about mechanics. You right. Know? Yeah. Once you find a good one, it's like, oh, no, I can't change mechanics.
1: I mean, I've changed mechanics a couple of times because my mechanic let me down. But, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Like my mechanic knows my car. Yeah. And I know my mechanic and I trust him. You know, he's not going to rip me off or he's not going to do a, sh- a crappy job. And so, yeah mechanic is the same thing shout out to our friends over at roswell pro audio
0: who helped make the working class audio podcast possible recently had the pleasure of using their mini k47 mic which is priced at 299 on a marshall cabinet and i gotta tell you it sounded absolutely amazing and that's going to be part of my setup from here on out so if you want to check it out, go over to RoswellProAudio.com, and they do offer free shipping, but if you really want to help our cause with them, make sure on the checkout when you buy a mic that you include the code WCAFREESHIP, and that way they know that you came from us and you heard about Roswell Pro Audio from Working Class Audio. So there it is. Check it out. RoswellProAudio.com. I took a look at your website and was looking at your rates and the thing that struck me that I wanted to ask you about when you when you got here was your rates are like more than affordable and I thought he's got all this experience and he's charging this amount do you do you feel that there's a a, a threshold with money and what you charge that will yield good clients or bad clients. And, and when I say good clients Uh, or bad clients, I mean, musically, you know, do you get a lot of low budget projects or do you get some, you know,
1: I get everything. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I've had some, some really, really low budget projects, you know, and, you know, people just recording in their bedrooms and I get a lot of that actually. And then I get some stuff that's, you know, pretty high quality, pretty, you know, some, there's, you can check out the credits on my website. Some of them are pretty well known. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a pretty diverse client base when you have a price point where I, especially my mastering price is really low. Mm-hmm. My recording price is now a lot higher than it was a couple of years ago, because once I got to the point where I realized mastering was going to be more of my career and eventually probably all of my career, I said, well, why am I offering such a competitive rate on recording so I raised it. It's still a fair rate, but it's it's not like it was it was like 25% lower a couple of years ago. What happened was the the natural change in my clients' demands from me became so much on the mastering side that I eventually reached a tipping point and then just said, "Well, I'm just going to go with that." So, I heard your episode where you opened up talking about diversification and I am now at the point after this many years where I'm actually undiversifying, uh-huh. you know, and I'm a sca- I'm scared to do it 100%. Yeah. I've got this big studio, and I've got all these microphones and all this outboard gear, and, and I've got a 24-track 2-inch tape machine and all this stuff that is for recording, and I love that stuff, and I don't want to give it up, but I'm also paying rent on this big 1,200-square-foot space when I'm only using the control room most of the time, and so at this point in my career – i have I'm like in the midst of this sort of transition, and I'm not quite ready to jump with both feet into the mastering thing, but I think that eventually I will.
0: I want to go back a sec to some of the the low budget clients that you do get mm-hmm. that are doing stuff in their bedroom. Do you ever have a problem where the clients with less experience and in the lower budget, lower quality uh, recordings that at least know enough to come to to mastering? as their last step in the process, do they ever come to you thinking that the result is going to dramatically alter the direction of their recording?
1: Some do, yeah. And some of them kind of rely on me to sort of mix their song during mastering, and others are, you know, they want a minimalist approach. Yeah, I have a fair amount of people that kind of expect me to be heavy-handed In the mastering and do a lot of EQing and reshaping of it. And I've gotten pretty good at that. And most of the time they're really happy. And if they're not, I do free revisions. And if it's a problem getting what they want, then I then I have to send them back to the mixing board, you know, because there's only so much you can do in mastering, you know. But that's rare. Usually I'll hear if there's a mix problem. That's gonna prevent me from being able to do what they're asking me to do. I'll tell them beforehand and save a lot of problems or a lot of repeat, you know, back and forth. Because now, after having this much experience, I can I can hear right away. I'm like, oh, that hi hat's gonna be a problem. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do.
0: Because <laughs> I mean, I've had clients that are expecting they've done uh, a a bedroom kind of recording and their idea of what mastering is, is that it's going to completely like turn, you know, shit into gold.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like we want to sound like the Foo Fighters is like the, the phrase I've probably heard more, you know, specifically more than any other from rock fans. Like, yeah, we really like the sound of the Foo Fighters, you know, can you do that? And so I try to avoid saying, well, do you use the same instruments they use? You know, blah, blah, blah. And just say, okay, well, I'll see how far I can take it in that direction. But, you know, and then I'll have to explain Everything I do in mastering affects every sound in the mix. So it's not like I have control over the kick drum and the guitar separately. You know, it's all, it's all together now. So I can give you a similar frequency response, loudness, stereo image possibly, but I can't, you know, I can't make your... Your uh, Fender sound like a Gibson or whatever, you know.
0: <laughs> I can't change your, <laughs> I can't change the kick and the snare sound and.
1: Yeah, and so I, I find I don't get too much unrealistic expectations. The, occasionally, there'll be somebody who's who doesn't really understand the production process from start to finish, and they they ask me for mix tweaks during mastering, mm-hmm. you know, and I just have to explain what it, what the difference is, and so I actually at this point now. To save time, I have um, copy and paste explanations of a lot of stuff in my email. So I can, you know, so, so I get asked the same question so many times, I'll just like copy and paste the answer and where I've written it out really carefully. And then that usually works.
0: What are the biggest challenges other than, you know, we talked about those kind of historical moments of recession and 9 11? Hmm. And I'm not talking technical challenges, but what have been the challenges of running your business? over the years
1: running the business itself is easy i keep it really simple Mm -hmm. it's just a sole proprietorship and i only have one checking account and i just everything is really simple i I streamline everything i don't have any employees to worry about i you know i clean the place myself i do everything myself it's a one-man operation i keep it super simple the biggest difficulty is just the amount of time it takes to answer all the phone calls and emails. Sometimes I'm I'm trying to get X amount of songs done a day, and I've got uh, you know an inbox to deal with. And the thing about emails is, every time you answer one, then they answer you back, and you have to answer it again. And so, <laughs> um, so you know, you keep going back and forth and around and around. Um, which is great. I mean, I want the emails, but as a time issue, it takes up a lot of time. The nice thing about mastering sessions is that while each song is printing. Mm -hmm. you have a few minutes to answer an email.
0: That's true. I'm sure you've gone through the, maybe I should get an assistant or maybe Mm -hmm. I should automate this somehow. Have you come to any great solution?
1: I've never thought about automating. I'm not sure, you know, if artificial intelligence is there yet. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I've thought about hiring someone, but really that's not in the budget. Like I would have to charge what, other people are charging if I had employees, yeah, even if they were um, not like real employees, but if they're just contractors, even so it, I'd be supporting a second person Mm -hmm. and that I, I just wouldn't be able to keep my rates low. And so I don't do it. Plus the
0: frustration of trying to train that person to act as your avatar.
1: Right. And be able to trust them to not mess it up. Yeah, I've never had anyone else in control of my schedule, you know, and um, I don't know if I would want that. And it's the same reason why I've never had a partner in my business is because I'm always booked up and I don't want to have to worry about, oh, no, the studio's not available that day or, you know, you know, when you try to reconcile schedules with someone else in the same space, that's something I've never wanted to deal with.
0: Yeah, especially when you share gear and set up and yeah. You know, you come in and you have 10 minutes to get ready for a session. And then, wait a minute, why is this set up like this? And Yeah. Oh, yeah. I unplugged all that. Right. <laughs> yeah. You'll have to work around that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. And, you know, the few times that I've had outside engineers work in the studio, I've run into a lot of that kind of stuff. Or I come in the next day and the whole, they didn't tear down. Oh. And, and all the cables and stands and mics are all still out. Uh, or, and like the the lights are all on and, you know, the, they just walked out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, no thanks. You know, that's, that's disrespectful. And those kind of experiences are like, you know, I left a, an, an engineer running a recording session in my studio with a band and I left and I came back to get something. And he had my U67 right up close on a kick drum. And I had expressly asked him not to do that. And so as soon as I left, I know he just went there and moved it. And, you know, that kind of thing. You don't know what, if they're gonna treat your gear the way you want your gear treated.
0: Hey, I wanna give a shout out to our friends over at Audio-Technica. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They of course offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. What keeps you in the Bay Area? And why couldn't you just take Trackworks and move to a place where the cost of living is less, maybe you can get a little more space for your money.
1: It's very tempting because now with the kind of work I'm doing with the mastering, it can be done online mostly. In fact, it is mostly, I'm probably by myself 75% of the time during mastering sessions. Now, even local people have just emailed me their tracks, but then I've got people from South America and all over the U S and Europe, like sending me tracks and I've never met these people. And, And so I could go move to Oregon and it's, which is that's the tempting place for me right now is Oregon and buy a house big enough to put a mastering suite in and live cheaper than I'm living now and not have to work as much and not worry about money or anything. But the reason I'm staying is because two things mainly one is my parents are in their eighties and they live here. Mm. And so I'm the only person nearby to help. And, um, most of the time they don't need help, but when they do, you know, I want to be close enough to be able to be there. And the other thing is that my wife's job is in San Francisco and she's got a lot of seniority built up. She's a nurse. She would be giving up a lot to move. And neither one of us really wants to leave. You know, this is home. Mm-hmm. That's the third big reason. I've grew up in the Bay Area. So since I was six years old, I've been in different, you know, all around different areas of it. But this is my world here. You know, I've lived here a long time. So, the whole Bay Area is ridiculously expensive now. So, I could live for less. I lived in San Francisco proper, and so it's very expensive. I could move to Berkeley and live cheaper, and that might be what we end up doing.
0: Has the 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 business and your relationship has that worked uh, well over the years, or have have there been any? Um you know, trouble spots or any, any kind of anecdotes we all can learn from?
1: (laughs) Sorry. No. Um, she is, it's, um, I was already well established by the time we met. So we met in 2003, I'd been in business eight years already and was already in the, the location that I'm in now. And so my business was, that was just where I went to work, you know, and she, she's never had to worry about it. There was never any, financial issues around it because it, it was already self-sustaining and going well. When I mentioned 2008, 2009 in the recession. So that happened to coincide with a period where it was before we were married and we had broken up temporarily during that time. So she actually did, wasn't around for that amount of financial stress that I went through. <laughs> she had her own things going on. and, and But um, then I think 2011 or 2010 or 2011, we got back together and- got married in 2012. Since then, for the last six years, it's been real smooth. I mean I just pay my share of you know the bills and we make about the same amount of income and so it works out nice and even.
0: Can you see yourself downsizing from a space perspective?
1: Yes. when I give up the recording business, mm-hmm. way downsized. What you know a dream of mine is to be able to afford a house in the Bay Area that has like a guest house or something that I can turn into a studio. And then I wouldn't have to commute and uh, no rent, you know, just the mortgage and, and could really build it the way I want it because I own it. And cause you know, the space I'm in now, I've been renting for 18 years, but I've never really fixed it up because it's not mine. Right. So I, I went for utilitarian. And so I built the studio to sound good, not to really look good. So I didn't, do a lot of finishing work, and you know, really make it into a fancy facility. But it has a comfort to it. It's a more like a rehearsal studio. So bands come in and they feel, you know, it's a warehouse. And, and they feel comfortable, you know, it's, it's not like, artificial to them, it's kind of a natural thing. And the control room is is acoustically good, but it doesn't look like the fancy control rooms you see in other studios. And uh, fortunately for me, nobody really seems to care that much. They really just care about what their music sounds like. So anyway, downsizing, I could take a space about the size of my current control room, put in like a little recording booth just for vocals or something for, so I can still have my finger in, in that a little bit, you know, <laughs> but focus on the mastering and maybe mixing and just set up a really great monitoring environment and get a different kind of a desk with a, a mastering type desk instead of what I've got now, which is like a mixing station kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Really go to town on on the design acoustically and aesthetically in in a smaller space, which would make it affordable.
0: When you came in, we were we were kind of riffing on uh, perception, mm-hmm. how you know the look and the the choice of speakers you make or. There's just some some things that, and I don't know how you feel about this if if it's legit or not. But when we're trying to you know get nicer speakers or uh, change our setup, do you feel that it's the clients that really care, or or is it being taken seriously by by others, by our peers?
1: That's that's driving that. Well, in my case, my clients, a lot of them are my peers because they are engineers mm. sending me things to master. I'm not sure what percent probably less than half of my clients are actual engineers but it's a good ch- good chunk yeah. you know and the engineer clients are really valuable because they keep coming up with more work all the time right they're constantly mixing things and so like whereas each client who's an artist does an album a year or every two years or something but uh, an engineer client is really valuable because they're turning out work constantly. So those people I want to make a good impression on. Yeah. And so far I, I haven't done much about trying to create impressions visually or, um, you know, through bragging about anything, I guess, cure or whatever. I just have gone with results and word of mouth and that's been fine. So I've been thinking recently and I was talking to you about is, um, Since the mastering is kind of taking over my world, is getting some big, impressive speakers that look more like what you see in other mastering rooms. And I don't know if they're going to make me sound any better. I'm happy with the sound I'm getting. Mm -hmm. The clients are happy with the sound. So I think it is all about perception. But I'm also really curious to hear these speakers, and you know, maybe it'll blow my mind. I don't know. <laughs> they're they're on in, en route to me right now. I'll have them in a couple of weeks.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like you haven't had to do an overt amount of marketing.
1: No, I don't really pay for advertising. I the most I ever did in terms of promotion, paid promotion was maybe I spent three hundred dollars on Facebook boosting posts yeah, and it it got me some traffic to my website, but I can't say it got me any gigs. So I stopped doing it. It's really hard to promote. It's, it's much better to get happy clients out there with word of mouth. And also you can network, which is what I used to do back in the, in the nineties, going to shows, meeting people, spending time with people. That was a good way to get work, but getting back to perceptions. Um, I, as far as promoting through perceptions, I guess is what we're talking about.
0: A little bit, yeah.
1: It is, you know, it is good to have a Neumann mic on your equipment list, for mm-hmm. example. You know, because people recognize the brand name and they they take you seriously if they see a U67 or whatever in your list. You know, they've heard of it. For mastering studios, they want to. Most people want to see some serious outboard processors which that's my thing anyway. I'm an analog guy. I started back before digital. And so I have a ton of outboard processors and I use a lot of tube gear with transformers and I use analog tape. And that's my whole uh, aesthetic personally, what the sound I like. And so the clients that gravitate to me have the same aesthetic as me, I assume. And the ones that gravitate somewhere else have whatever that other aesthetic. So I said to earlier that it's all about what the client wants, but there's another side to that too, is that you have to do things the way you like and the clients who like what you do will find you because I don't want to be just doing things that I don't think sound good or that doing things in a way that doesn't make me happy. Then I wouldn't enjoy my work as much. Yeah. And I used to do that more because I needed, or I felt like I needed the work more. And now after being established I can be a little more choosy, which is why, like I don't take on every client that comes along. I don't want that to sound no weird, I, but, no, you know
0: i I do the same thing. I've been uh, in fact more than ever if I hear anything in the conversation that mm-hmm. I've heard before,
1: red flags,
0: red flags yeah. yeah i um i I won't go down a rabbit hole here, but I got a, a real obtuse strange phone call uh yesterday and it was just all my red flags were going off and uh, you know I trust my what I call my phone radar I can smell yeah. I can smell a problem <laughs> from yeah many miles away over the uh the over the phone and so as a result I really try to you know if I sense it's gonna be a problem I just I don't get involved
1: yeah yeah that's smart and that's something I think that you know you that comes naturally after x number of years doing this when people just you you see a certain phrase or a certain buzzword in an email or you hear it on the phone and and or you know a tone of voice even and you'll be like oh no this is one of those you know
0: (laughs) (laughs) habits any uh any habits you have any routines that you
1: do health-wise i work hard i I go to the gym like six days a week and um and a lot of that is to keep my back in shape because all that strengthening exercises you do at a gym um, and there's the um, aerobic type stuff, you know, getting your body in motion really helps and, and really reinforces the work that the chiropractor does. And so that's really what's keeping me going now is because the sitting in a, in a control room chair and using a mouse, the amount of, to- of time that I put in doing that. It's it kills you, you know. My neck, my upper back, my lower back. I have three spots, and so exercise is my thing now. For the last six years or so, I think I started in 2012. I joined this gym, and um, it makes a big difference. Keeps your weight down. You feel better mm-hmm. and um, stronger. The you know strengthening your muscles in your back and your whole core keep you able to do the long hours in the studio without killing yourself. You know, when I was in my twenties and even my thirties, that wasn't a problem, you know, but when I got into my forties, uh, I started getting a lot of pain and then, you know, now I'm in my early fifties and I'm exercising all the time and it's just, you know, it's that's where I've come to and it works. So I, you know, that's my good habit.
0: I wonder if there's any connection between health and hearing. Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I would think that your hearing per se would be not affected so much about by your health, but your stamina mm. and your ability to focus for long periods of time. I think, you know, especially if you're mixing that requires constant focus for hours and hours. It's the hardest thing for me is mixing because it takes so much mental energy. And I think your mental energy can be sapped by your physical state of being for sure. So maybe they're just pounding coffee all day. I don't know. Oh,
0: <laughs> well, I've never done that. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Justin, thank you so much for coming out and yeah. chatting with me. It's great to see you, and it's uh, I'm glad you're doing so well. And uh, it has been, a, like, I can't remember the last time we saw each other.
1: I can't either. But, I mean, I met you, I think it was the late 80s for the first time. You were a drummer in my friend's band. Yeah. Really great drummer, by the way. Oh, thank
0: you. Yeah, i unfortunately I've uh, I've really burnt out on playing drums. Oh, no, it's
1: too bad. Well,
0: uh, so if people want to learn more about you, it's trackworks.com. That's T-R-A-K-W-O-R-X.com. Right. And uh, any other locations? Uh, are you on social media as far as Instagram or anything like that that people uh, should...
1: yeah, Trackworks Mastering on Instagram. Okay. And there's a trackworks mastering and recording on Facebook. And I'm also on Gear Sluts as Trackworks Okay. and RGO, Real Gear Online as Trackworks Mastering. Okay.
0: I'll put links to all of that in the show notes for people to, to check out. So great to see you. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. All right. Justin Weiss here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Before I go today, I want to remind you to stop on by our sponsors' pages that uh, help make the Working Class Audio Podcast possible, including the License Lab, Gearsluts.com, Roswell Pro Audio, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. And of course, we got to thank our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale and Mr. Chuck Smith for their efforts. And uh, as usual, I do appreciate you stopping by week after week. Uh, Spread the word, tell your friends, like us on social media, and by all means, stop on by WorkingClassAudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.